That's <laughs> the water. All right. Well, good morning, beloved. I do want to uh, take a moment and welcome any of you visiting with us um, today. It's great to see these new faces. And if that's the case, you came at a, a great time. Um, we're starting a brand new message series today called Christ Alone, a verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Colossians. It's a, a wonderful book that exalts the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, since this morning we'll be primarily introducing the theme of the book and some of the context, I just want to begin reading verses 1 through 2 today. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Here now is a reading of God's living and infallible word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our Father. Now, I want to begin this morning by giving um, you all a little bit of the background and historical context that surrounds this great epistle. Uh, The year is between 60 and 63 AD, and the Apostle Paul is in Rome. Now, Paul had always longed to go to Rome, for Rome, after all, was the capital city of the entire known empire, and, and Paul knows something. Paul knows something that if he was to reach Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will send a ripple effect throughout the entire known empire. But as Paul finds himself in Rome, he finds himself as a prisoner. He had envisioned himself coming to Rome and perhaps even preaching the gospel in front of thousands at the Colosseum, debating the Stoics and the philosophers in the villages and marketplaces. But now he finds himself in Rome as a prisoner of the state, and he doesn't know which way the verdict is going to go. Now, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he was allowed certain privileges. One of those privileges was the fact that he, though very much was a prisoner, was allowed to be under house arrest. And what that meant was being chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week to a Roman Praetorian guard, one of the elite of the Roman Empire. And so Paul is in a confined area. He's cut off from public ministry. In fact, we learn in Acts 28 that he is here for two long years. This is one of at least three imprisonments that we know occurred. And that 
two years must have felt like an eternity for Paul. He was unable to travel and to preach the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what he was commissioned and called to do. So here he is. He's finally in Rome. He's expected to go as a preacher, but instead he finds himself as a prisoner. And he's awaiting trial. And he will stand before Caesar Nero, and Nero has the power of life and death. And Paul doesn't know whether he will live or whether he will die. And it's in the midst of this situation that a man arrives from the city of Colossae. And he finds his way to Paul's home. His name is Epaphras. And he's introduced to us in verses 7 through 8. He's believed to be a disciple from Paul's fruitful ministry in Ephesus. And he's very likely the founding pastor of at least the church of Colossae. And we'll visit that a little further as we go. And Epaphras has traveled over a thousand miles to come and visit Paul and to seek his counsel because there's trouble brewing in the church at Colossae. As false teachers there have begun to encroach into the life of the church and it will come to be known as the Colossian heresy. And before we dive into this book, we need to know the background of this before because it's the historical backdrop and one of the primary reasons that Paul is writing this letter. Now the Colossian heresy is one of the more complex heresies to deal with because it was multifaceted. One of the elements was Jewish legalism and of course their aim was to put the church under the Jewish ceremonial and dietary laws of the Old Testament. In fact, the first glimpse we see of this is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16, where Paul warns the Colossians that no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These, says Paul, were things which were a mere shadow of what was to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And this is consistent with what Paul said in Romans chapter 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The dietary laws and festivals and sacrifices were all things which were a mere shadow of what was to come and are fulfilled in the person of Christ. A shadow has no reality. The reality is what makes a shadow. Jesus is the reality to which the shadow pointed to. So, for example, what about the Passover? Are Christians required to observe, say, the Passover feast? Well, take, for instance, Paul, when he speaks in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, which says, Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And so Paul's point to the Colossians is simply this. Don't allow these men to act as your judge on whether or not you are spiritual enough. True spirituality isn't earned by keeping a list of external rules or rituals or philosophies you'll read about in chapter 2, verse 8. But rather, true spirituality is experienced in a true and abiding relationship in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
See, those who teach a false religion will always try to tell you there's more for you to do. If you really want to be spiritual like this, or like us, you'll try harder. Or in other words, that Christ alone is not enough. And then besides Jewish legalism, there was also elements of early Gnosticism. Now this term comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means to know, and you'll remember this from 2 Peter. And the Gnostics were the people who claimed to be in the know when it came to the deep things of God. And through this special knowledge, you could reach deeper spiritual truths and experiences on a much higher level, supposed Christian living. They would say things like, if you can advance beyond the physical outside of this body and experience the things in more spiritual realm, there you'll experience oneness with God. And of course, that opened the door for Eastern mysticism, which is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from our human intellect, is defined as the pursuit of a deeper or higher subjective religious experience. And that's what drives it, your experiences. It's all about your experience. Dabbling in the visions and in the supernatural. Today you'll even hear it referred to as the New Age movement. Where your truth is found internally by weighing your feelings and emotions and your intuition mysticism ultimately derives from its authority from self-authentication enlightenment from within as the false teachers would claim they possessed a mystical union with god which by the way also included angel worship needless to say paul exhorts the colossians in chapter 2 verse 18 not to allow these false teachers to keep defrauding you of your prize. He says they delight in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And that's the idea, the worship of angels, secret visions that they had seen, all of it inflated by a fleshly mind. Now, if you have an ESV, verse 18 translates this section this way. It says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism. And they include this because asceticism was also a part of this heretical soup that was being cooked in Colossae. This was another dangerous heresy that you can see actually more clearly in verses 20 to 23. But essentially, the ascetic is one who lives a life of vigorous self-denial. You know, Martin Luther used to whip himself as the practice would teach. It was a dualistic philosophy where in an attempt to free the spirit, you would often starve the flesh. So in addition to practicing legalism, mysticism, paganism, the false teachers were also attempting to gain righteousness through asceticism or self-denial. Now in the face of it, you might say, well, self-denial sounds okay. Uh, after all, didn't Jesus say, deny yourself? Uh, take up your cross daily and follow me? But this was something completely different. Notice what Paul says in verse 20. He writes, if you have died with Christ 
to the elementary principles of the world. Why, Paul asks, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to degrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? See, through their union with Christ, the redeemed are set free from man-made rules and philosophies which were designed to promote some kind of a higher spirituality to practice asceticism, Paul writes, is to adopt a worldly system of religion based on elementary practices. So Paul warns them in verse 23, although these have an appearance of wisdom, truthfully, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, asceticism might make a person appear as holy because of its supposed emphasis on godliness and sacrifice, but the reality is it only serves themselves. In addition to all of that, they had reduced Christ to be a created being. Less than God the Father, equal with the angels, but not the eternal Son of God. A created being who was less than. And so, all of this in Colossian, in the Colossian heresy, we will see, and as we go through these four chapters, we will come to understand why Paul says what he does, because he's having to address a number of these various issues. So, the man who has brought this concern to Paul, his name's Epaphras, and as I mentioned, he's believed to be the founding pastor of the church there in Colossae. In fact, when Paul writes this letter, he has to give it to another man to take it back because it appears from Paul's letter to Philemon that Epaphras, will, after visiting with Paul, also became imprisoned in Rome. And so he was unable to return to the church he pastored, likely for preaching the gospel there as well. Now, if I had to sort of boil it down to just a couple of words, what sort of the main theme of the book is, it would be something along the lines of the supremacy of Christ. That if you have Christ, you have everything. That if you have Christ, you don't need all this other stuff that the Colossian heresy was providing. You don't need angel worship if you have Christ. Are you kidding me? The angels are worshiping Christ. Why would you be hung up with the angels when they're hung up worshiping Christ? And one by one by one, all of these issues fall away if you understand the person and the work of Christ Everything else is exposed for what it is, and it's deception, lies, and false teaching. And the church is made stronger when they understand who Jesus Christ is. So it's why Paul will say in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, he, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in, in him all things hold together. 
He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might be preeminent. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And so to have Christ is to have everything you need in your Christian life. And that's a message we need today more than ever. Because the church today is looking for what they think they need in order to be productive as believers in all these other areas. And so we need to understand this book right now, for today to unravel the charismatic chaos happening, to unravel suffocating legalism, to unravel hyper-emotional mysticism. What we need is the living word made known to you through the written word. And that's all you need. And so with our time today, I just want us to look at these two verses, and you'll see on the back of your bulletin, I've broken it up into four separate headings. And the first heading I want you to notice is the author. The author. Notice how verse 1 begins. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's stop right there. Now, this name, Paul, is probably the last name in the world that the early church expected to see written first in this letter. Because Paul was originally a man named Saul of Tarsus. And he was formerly public enemy number one of the early church. I mean, Saul of Tarsus was the chief persecutor of the early Christians. He's already stood there and watched Stephen be stoned to death. He was the man that Acts 9-1 says was breathing out murderous threats against the disciples. In fact, as you keep reading Acts chapter 9, Saul had such hatred for the Christians that he went to the high priest and he asked for some papers that would allow him to travel and to go to Damascus. And if he found any belonging to the way, these little Christians, he would arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. But as you'll recall, as he was on that Damascus road that day, suddenly the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him and knocked him right off his high horse. And in that moment, he was sovereignly called by the Lord Jesus Christ and later says he was regenerated by the Spirit of God and commissioned as the Lord's chosen instrument to bear witness to his name. And from that moment on, Saul of Tarsus became Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Arguably one of the greatest Christian men who ever walked this earth. He would become a preacher, a missionary, an evangelist, a church planter, a discipler, a theologian, and an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his spare time, he wrote 13 letters of your New Testament, which is nearly half of it. 
He is a trophy of God's grace. And so, here he is. And to see his name as the first word of this epistle, it reminds us that no one is too far gone the outstretched saving arm of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what a reminder. God can save anyone in a heartbeat. And no one is unsavable when the power of God and the power of the gospel explodes in that person's life. And so, here he is in verse 1. Now Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, that word apostle signifies that he has an official position within the church of Jesus Christ. He's not simply a, a messenger, but an apostle. He is an official representative of the one who sent him. What he writes in this letter is not merely his opinion, but it's God's authorized word. He is the one who receives revelation from God and speaks with authority to the church. The word apostle literally means someone who has been sent out on the authority of another. And in this case, it is on the authority of Jesus Christ. Wherever Paul goes, that was his whole life, to preach Christ. And notice what he says next. He writes, by the will of God. Paul wants us to know he he did not volunteer for this. He wants us to know he didn't go to a sign-up sheet and say, you know what, I'd like to be an apostle. Nope. It was nothing that he sought. Christ sought him. He wasn't self-appointed. He wasn't commissioned by another man. He wasn't appointed by a group of elders or a church. Ultimately, he has been commissioned from the courts of heaven above by the will of God. And he has been set apart and sent to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ by the sovereign will of God from before the foundation of the world. In fact, if you want to turn to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1, there's a couple verses I'd like to show you. In Galatians chapter 1, in verse 15 through 16, actually let me just read verse 15, it says, he had been set apart even from his mother's womb, called through God's grace that he might preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul stresses this elsewhere as well. Look at Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. He writes, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul wants the church to know he is serving in this capacity by divine appointment. And so he asserts his apostolic authority wherever he thinks it is necessary. Because again, there were places in churches where this was in question. And in those places, you notice that Paul will assert his authority as an apostle in the letter to the church. An apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. 
We see Paul assert this actually right out of the gate in places like Ephesus as well. Notice how Ephesians 1.1 begins. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. There's a bunch of these. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. First and 2 Timothy as well. There's a bunch of books. You see, Paul has to know this about his life. He has been called by the sovereign will of God, set apart before the foundations of the world, because there are hard times marked out for Paul. Jesus said back in Acts chapter 9, he will suffer for my name's sake. And Paul needs to know that what he is doing, he is doing by the will of God. Because if Paul didn't know that, he would have bailed out the first time the Jews had stoned him, dragged him outside of the city and left him for dead. He would have said, that's it. I'm out. No one's going to go through all of what Paul went through if he didn't know it had all been planned and marked out by the will of God. And beloved, the same is true for you and me. Wherever it is that you serve the Lord, you need to know you're doing this by the will of God. Because when difficulties arise, and when opposition pushes back against it, you need to have an anchor for your soul and know that I am here by the will of God. Not by the will of man, by the will of God. And so, Paul wants the church at Colossae to know that everything that he will write in this letter, he writes as an apostle with divine authority that's been given to him as he has been called and commissioned by none other than Jesus Christ. So point number one was the author. This is a book written and inspired by God, written by Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In point number two, we meet the associate. The associate. Notice the rest of verse one. He adds, and Timothy, our brother. And uh, you get the sense from Scripture that the Apostle Paul truly loved young Timothy. I mean, really. And he demonstrated his love for Timothy here by inserting his name in the opening line and by calling him our brother. The fact that he's our brother means that he's truly saved. It means he's a genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knows this about Timothy as he's been Paul's constant companion through most of his missionary journey spanning, I think I added up, at, at least between 12 and 15 years, I think Timothy was probably with him. And we know, you know, a decent amount about Timothy. Uh, his mother and grandmother are both actually named in Second Timothy chapter 1. His mother was named Eunice and his grandmother's name was Lois. And they were both Jewish women who raised Timothy in the faith they taught him the scriptures. His father was a Greek. Now later, when Paul wrote to Timothy, we see the great love that he had for him. He writes in verse 4, As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you 
as well. And for years, the Apostle Paul was able to tutor and to mold and to mentor and to disciple as well as preparing Timothy as the next generation that will step into ministry after Paul is gone. And listen to this. Timothy will be with Paul when Paul writes the book of Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. I mean, Timothy's right there by his side. He's a part of the process of preparing Timothy for the future to take over the reins of ministry after Paul is gone. And Paul will go on to commission Timothy to go to various churches to represent Paul while he's in prison. As Paul sent Timothy to Corinth, Philippi, Thessalonica, and to Ephesus. And Timothy is even with Paul right now as Paul's locked up in Rome. This speaks volumes to Timothy's faithfulness to God and to his brother Paul that he's willing to stick his neck out and to share in the persecution with Paul. Now, before we uh, move on, just a word of application. Every Paul needs a Timothy. Every Timothy needs a Paul. Okay? This is what discipleship is, and it's summed up best for us. Our discipleship group on Thursday will appreciate Proverbs 27.17, which says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Brother Dale outfitted us with all a shirt that says this, and it's great to wear it and to get together and to disciple and pour into one another and uh, live this scripture out. And that's what true discipleship is. Me taking my gifts and talents and influencing those younger in the faith around me as one man sharpens another. Paul would write, for example, 1 Corinthians 11, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What was Jesus' instruction to the disciples before he went to heaven? After the resurrection, he said in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make what? Disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you are a follower of Christ, here are your marching orders. He even gave us three easy steps. I like those. Step one, go and disciple the nations. Therefore, go. Go and disciple. Step two, after they believe in the correct Christ and, and declare Jesus as their Lord, we baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the problem is, for most professing Christians, we stop right there. We either baptize them and send them on their way, or we get baptized and then we wait around for the Lord to return. But that's not what Jesus said. He said, go and make disciples, baptize them, and then number three, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's discipleship right there. And so no matter where you are in your Christian life, 
You need to either be casting an influence upon those who are younger in the faith than you, or you need to be under the influence of someone who's able to sharpen you. That's what discipleship is. And it can take place in a variety of different ways. Stop trying to put it in a box and make it look like a certain way. He didn't give us a whole big long list here, and you got to go here, you got to do this. It's got to be this many people. You can have one-on-one, three-in-one. You can have a larger group, smaller group. Some do it together as a family unit at their kitchen table, praise God. Some come together at the church, gather together on Sunday mornings. You got families that come together, husbands and wives, and they're able to participate together. Topical studies, devotional sort of stuff, application sorts of things. I disciple my own group of men who want doctrine. Doctrine, teach them the teachings of God's word. There's the Monday night. It's men discipling men. They meet here at the church. There have been women who get together and have coffee and disciple one another. Multiple women have done that. I say, go and disciple one another. You don't need to set something up here. Just go and do what the Bible tells you to do. But every one of us needs to have this trickle-down influence on somebody else. Listen, none of us have arrived. None of us. I need people in my life who sharpen me just like anyone else. And that's what we see Paul doing in the life of Timothy. He lives this out. That brings us to number three and the assembly. The assembly or the congregation. In verse two... We now transition from the author and the associate to the assembly. Notice what Paul writes at the beginning of verse 2. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Now, there are several words here that we need to definitely give our attention to. The first of them would be this word saints. Uh, notice that's in the plural. And that's because every true believer in Colossae is a saint. It's not just Epaphras who's the pastor. It's not their deacons and elders who are saints. But every true believer in Jesus Christ in Colossae is a saint. And we all know the word, but what exactly does this word mean? I've seen it attached to some pretty weird stuff. In the Greek, it's the word hagios, which actually means holy or sacred, set apart. And in this context, it more means to be set apart. One who is separated from sin, set apart unto Christ. It means to be set apart from your old life of sin and now to your new life in Christ. And this transformation takes place at the moment someone is born again. It's not that we become perfect. It's not that there isn't an ongoing process of sanctification that is ongoing, but rather instantaneously at the new birth, the old heart of stone is taken out. Once you are born again, you have a born-on-time date. You can't be kind of born again. There's no such thing. Jesus returns right now. Are you born again or are you unborn? It's one of the two. There's not going to be I'm in the middle. And so, instantaneously, once that new birth happens, the old heart of stone is taken out, and he puts in a new heart 
of flesh. And now we have a new heart with new desires that's holy and pleasing unto God. And so everyone at the church of Colossae who's a true believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. Whether you got saved yesterday or you got saved 50 years ago, it doesn't matter. If you are in Christ, you're a saint. And it brings about a distinctive difference in one's lifestyle that you are now headed in. A new direction. You're on a, a new path, a new narrow path. You're under new management. You're following a new master. Your life has been radically changed. And if your life hasn't been radically changed, then you've never met Jesus Christ. Because he's too powerful and he's too full of grace to meet the resurrected, glorified Christ from the pages of Scripture and for your life not to be altered significantly. He takes that which is dead and he brings it to life. And so, this is the way that Paul addresses the church of Colossae. He writes to the saints. And then he also gives a further description of them that they are faithful brethren in Christ. Every saint is a faithful brother or sister in Christ. And so every one of us here today who is in Christ would be described as faithful. So what does that word faithful mean? It means reliable, trustworthy, loyal, dedicated to Jesus Christ. If you are in Christ Jesus then you are going to be faithful because when you, when the Lord calls you home, He will say to you one day, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Faithful. And then notice that word brethren. Paul uses that word to point out that every saint is in the family of God. He or she has been adopted by God and therefore we have the same heavenly father and we bear the same um, family likeness as we are being conformed into the image of his son. And then the next two words might be Paul's favorite as he adds in Christ. I think it's in Ephesians 1 where I counted up it's like 12 or 13 times in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Christ. In Christ means that every saint and every faithful brethren is in union and communion with Christ. We're, we're plugged into Christ. Christ is in us, but we're also in Christ. His wisdom becomes our wisdom. His power and strength becomes our power and strength. His love and kindness becomes our love and kindness. And we become like Him because we are in Christ. There isn't one drop of saving grace outside of Christ. It's all found in Christ. And that will become the dominant theme of this book, that if you are in Christ, you have everything you need to live your Christian life in that way that pleases God. And then notice what Paul writes next. He adds, who are in Colossae? Who are at Colossae? Now, this is very specific to the church that Paul is writing to. Um, time doesn't really permit us to go into all the details of Colossae, but 
Um, suffice to say a couple things about it. Colossae was located in uh, modern-day Turkey, uh, which in Paul's day was known as Asia Minor, just uh, below the more well-known cities of Laodicea and um, Heropolis, about 100 miles east of the bustling city of Ephesus, right near the middle of that picture there. Now, Colossae actually was a city on decline by the time that this was being written. In fact, by 400 AD, Colossae no longer existed, wiped out from earthquakes and everything else. It probably never would have even been written or mentioned in the New Testament had it not been for the church here in Colossae. It's not mentioned at all in the book of Acts because, as I mentioned earlier, Paul had never been there. He'll say in his letter to the Colossians, I'm writing to you, but I've never, I've never met you. <laughs> but the gospel did come to Colossae. And not by Paul, but by Epaphras, who possibly, like I said, came to faith in Christ through Paul's preaching, I think probably in Ephesus. Now, if you recall, Paul was in Ephesus for about three years. But people started coming to him from all over Asia Minor, all over modern-day Turkey. And do you know that during those three years that all seven of the churches of Revelations chapter 2 and 3 were founded? You have Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. All of those churches were founded during that time, and so was the church in Colossae. They were all outgrowths of Paul's ministry on his third missionary journey as he ministered there. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, this is pretty wild. And listen to what it says in, in verse 10. Acts chapter 19 and verse 10, this is part of Paul's mis, uh, ministry while well, he's there in Ephesus for the three years. It says this took place for, for two years so that all who lived in Asia, that is Asia Minor, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So over those two years, the gospel went out with such force that all who lived in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. And then notice what Paul's accusers say of him and a little further in Acts 19 and verse 26. They're about ready to, to have a riot, throw Paul and his crew out of Ephesus and his accusers say, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. <laughs> so it is the comment of Luke in verse 10, it's the comment of his persecutors in verse 26, that the gospel had been preached so faithfully that it had, had filled the whole of Asia Minor. And so from the vantage point of Ephesus, people would come and hear the gospel and then go back wherever they had come from. And from Colossae came two guys, Epaphras and Philemon. Both of them believed in Christ, possibly through Paul's ministry in Asia Minor. Either way, Epaphras and others returned home to Colossae from that trip and he starts three important churches himself. Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis. In fact, listen to Paul, what he writes in Colossians chapter 4, 
12 through 13. Epaphras, and he's writing to the church, so he's telling the church about his pastor, and, and their pastor ain't coming back. And they probably never saw Epaphras again. But Paul says, Epaphras, your, your pastor that's here with me, he came on your behalf and, and your concern. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings. Paul already knows, through the Holy Spirit, he ain't bringing this letter back. Always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Those other two churches that he likely founded and, and pastored. So he was a, a traveling minister on those uh, three very important early churches. Well, we got one final heading to close with today. Oh, sorry, I didn't, didn't turn to verse 13. Let's go to number four and, and the affection. Here we see Paul's affection. And this is at the end of verse two. Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father. This could be described as intercessory prayer, really. This is Paul's request for the favor of God to be upon the Colossians, upon the church of Colossae. And the word grace here, like in last week's verses, does not refer primarily to God's saving grace. They're already saved, right? He's writing to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ. They're saved. So here he's asking to, for sanctifying grace and, and serving grace and strengthening grace and sustaining grace. And let me just say this, that in everything we do, we need God's grace. I need God's grace to study His Word. I need God's grace in preparation for these sermons. I need God's grace to preach His Word. I need God's grace to be a loving husband. I need God's grace to witness to people. I need God's grace in everything in my life. And you need God's grace. You need God's grace to be lavished upon you. And then please notice, he adds, and peace from God our Father. And the order here is important. You'll never have peace until you first have his grace. <laughs> Sorry. And again, this, this peace is, is not peace with God. This is the peace of God. This is the peace of God because you have his grace. You've got his peace. This is not objective peace, the uh, result of justification by faith. This is subjective peace, that there would be an inner calmness within the soul in the midst of the storms of this life, that there would be a real lasting peace inside of your heart and, and you're, as you're surrounded by the, the pressures of, of, of this world. And the only way we can have the peace of God which surpasses all understanding is to trust in the good purposes of our infinite, holy, servant, all-powerful, all-knowing, good-in-every-way God, that we trust in Him in every trial, in every situation. And those who honor Christ by trusting in 
him will experience the supernatural blessing of his peace. Have you ever trusted in Christ and God's been faithful to take you through it? And I'll just tell you from my own experience, when God's supernatural peace comes upon you in the midst of the storm, it's like what John says in chapter 1, verse 16, as his grace upon grace. It's like that the water, when I taught through John 1, the grace upon grace is like, comes in like a wave and comes and washes you and, and takes all that junk out and then it comes back and washes you with grace. Grace upon grace. We need His grace in every moment of every day for in His grace is the peace of God. Would you also notice the source of it? It is from God our Father. That's where the source of our grace and, and peace begins. It comes from God our Father through God the Son and is applied by God the Holy Spirit. It is really a Trinitarian work within us. And, and let me just say this also, that you're not going to get any peace from the world that's out there. I'll just tell you that right now. Jesus said it this way in John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world, the, the, the world system, the sway of the evil one, in, in, the, in the hands of the, the world, you will have tribulation. There will be great trouble in the world. But Christ says, take heart, I have overcome the world. Now there are, are means by which this peace and grace flows through in our life. The Puritans used to speak of it as the primary means of grace. And these are means by which God ministers to his own children. Some of the means that God uses to dispense his grace to you and, and peace from God is through the preaching of God's word. Your own personal study, of course, in his word. There's also prayer and worship. The Lord's table is a grace. There's fellowship that is such a such the peace of God and the grace of God poured out when I have fellowship with my brothers and sisters. And of course, serving the Lord. And all these are, are means of God's grace by which He strengthens and support, uh, supports and, and sustains His own as His grace and peace flows into your life. And so we need to be engaged in order to receive His graces as he builds up his church for his glory. Well, that's our introduction to the book of Colossians. We looked at a little bit of everything. If you are in need of prayers this morning, I want to invite you that you can come forward today or stay over with Elizabeth. Um, we would love to pray with you. And at this time, I want to invite you to please stand as we praise Jesus Christ in Christ alone. Lord bless you all. Yes, ma'am.